Good morning again, everyone. The kids can be dismissed to go practice the Christmas program. Hey, Colin. Colin, you turn me down just a little bit. Thank you. This Sunday is week three of Advent. Week one was the idea of hope. Week two was the idea of peace. And today is week three is the idea of joy. So we lit the, the third candle, uh, in an Advent candle, which is the, the candle of joy. Today we're going to talk about this idea of joy. What we're going to we'll be is and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 35 is where we're going to be as we talk about this idea of, of joy. What does that mean? Now the book of Isaiah is essentially in two chunks. Isaiah 1 through 39 is about God's judgment, and 40 through 66 is about God's comfort. So we're at the very end in Isaiah 35 of this section on God's judgment, but Isaiah kind of comes up for air right here and talks a little bit about the joy that is to come. You can imagine for that many chapters of hitting people over the head with God's judgment, you're going to do something at least halfway nice for a little bit, and Isaiah's going to talk in this chapter about this idea that it looks bad now, but it won't stay that way forever. Now what's happened, if you know biblical history, what's happened when Isaiah is speaking is, is some, of the, some of God's people have been carried off into captivity by some of their enemies. And some of those enemies were very brutal people, like the Assyrians, for instance, were very, very violent people. And so it's been a very tough going for, the, for God's people here for a little while. And so Isaiah is trying to give them a little bit of hope in this section as well. So we'll jump in here in Isaiah Chapter 35, beginning in verse 1 and 2, it says this, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. We start in this image of the desert. Now, you should know it well. You live in the high desert. You've been there. I remember the first time visiting... The Midwest, where my mom is from originally, where they don't have to irrigate their crops. It was a little different, a little weird that the rain just does it for them. Uh, I don't know about you, but if growing up in Weezer, I remember being at my grandma's house and having dirt clod fights with my brother because our, our soil gets so dry and so much clay in it that it turns into little clouds. You grab them and try to throw them at your brother's head as hard as you can. And then if he cries, you apologize and hope he doesn't tell mom and dad, right? That was the game. Well, we're, we live in the high desert. We're used to not having a lot of water. We're used to, when spring comes and the rain stops and the sun comes out, what happens to our hills? They're green for about two weeks, and then all of a sudden, what color are they? They're brown. They're dry. Now, if you know anything about the climate around Jerusalem, it's actually very similar to our climate. It's an arid climate. And so think about how, how Isaiah begins this chapter. The desert and the parched land will be glad. Well, they're, they're used to the desert. They know all about the desert. They've, they've lived in the desert. The desert is all around them, right? They know about the desert. He knows how the soil, our soil is the same way in the summertime, what happens? It starts to crack eventually because there's so much clay in our soil, right? That's not normal for other parts of the regions of the country. Didn't know that until you went there, right? We know about desert. They know about desert. He says the desert and the parched land will be glad. 
The wilderness, which is not what you think of wilderness, you think of the French church wilderness, that's not what he's talking about. Wilderness for them was even more desert, right? It was south of them. Think about where the Israelites had wandered for 40 years after the Exodus. That's what he's talking about when he talks about wilderness. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Does our wilderness do a lot of blossoming? Did their wilderness do a lot of blossoming? Does the desert blossom a lot? Not a lot. No. Spring, maybe some grass grows and maybe, maybe some wildflowers, but that's about it, and we're done. So the picture here is something that is dry and essentially dead coming to life. That's the picture he's painting when he talks about the desert. The desert and the parched land. Parched, of course, is what? Wanting and thirsting for moisture, for water. It says this desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Well, that's not normal. That's not how this thing normally goes. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The crocus is a spring flower, a flower that comes up in the spring and it belongs to the iris family. I'm not much of a flower person, so I'd look that up. It springs up naturally in the spring when there's rain and then goes away, obviously, once, it's, once the, the spring rains are, are gone. So it will, this desert is bursting into bloom. It will rejoice greatly with, sh- with Greatly, excuse me, and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Now those places I know don't mean a lot to you. But those places, Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, the ancient world, are symbols of fertility. A fertile soil and thick vegetation grew there. It was the very opposite of Jerusalem, which is much like us. It's in a desert. So when you think of, when they thought the ancient world of splendor, if you've if you're from the Oregon coast, or you've been to the Oregon coast, and then you come back here, it's a little different in climate, isn't it? It rains on the Oregon coast all the time here. When it rains, it's a celebration. It's like, oh, we smoked, it's raining, right? This is, this is different. Think of, that's the difference. With Lebanon, with Carmel and Sharon, there are places of fertile soil where it rains. And then we talk about Jerusalem. This is a desert. They will see the glory of God and the splendor of our God. He continues in verse 3 and 4. It says this, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. What Isaiah is doing here is he's invoking language that we we see, and the the Israelites would have known from the time of the Exodus. Remember that story of the Exodus? God's people become enslaved in Egypt to Pharaoh because he's worried that they'll become too strong and too mighty and join another army if it comes from the north and join with them and fight against them. And so what he does out of fear is turns them into slaves. And they've been enslaved and they work in fields and they make bricks and they do all kinds of stuff and they're slaves and they work seven days a week, who knows, 12 to 16 hours a day and they're slaves. They have no choice. They have no freedom. And so they cry out to God. And what does God do? The Bible tells us that God comes to their rescue after he hears their cries. Crying out to God. What does Isaiah tell us here? Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts. Well, he's invoking language of the people who were were slaves in Egypt. Saying, guys, remember, during Isaiah's time, what's happening is a very difficult time in the nation. They've lost hope. 
They've been, they've been conquered. They've been defeated. And so now what are they going to do? And Isaiah's reminding them, guys, we've, we've been here before. Don't forget your past. Don't forget your history. Remember when the Israelites were, were slaves in Egypt. And what did God do? Did God leave them there to rot, to decay, and die? No. He came to their rescue. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Come to your rescue. This is language of the Exodus, where God does, doesn't he? He brings Moses. Moses has about 4,000 excuses of why he can't do what God asks him to do. God says, Moses, I need you to go back. I need you to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of my people. Moses goes, well, God, you know, I'm not great at talking. Um, and gives more excuses and finally comes into, well, God, I don't want to. And God says, yeah, I don't think you know how this thing works, um, but I generally get my way, and so you're going to go whether you like it or not. Right? That's kind of how this whole deal is going to... That's a cute conversation we just had, but you're going to go. And Moses goes. And when you, you remember the story. You probably learned it in Sunday school. God brings ten mighty acts, ten plagues upon the Egyptians, every one of them attacking one of their gods or goddesses. It's an attack on their power structure and their system. And the last plague is what? The death of, not just the death of anyone, but who's the, who dies? The death of the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. Isaiah is getting them to understand as this is going to, God's going to do this again. He's going to come to the rescue. Now I want you to think for just a second about the time of year it is and think about a firstborn son. As if God had this planned all along. Like, that the Israelites' redemption comes from the death of the Egypt's firstborn son, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. And what was Pharaoh's firstborn son going to be? Be king next. And how did God put this whole thing back together? The death of somebody else's firstborn son. pieces of the puzzle are put back together as God had the pieces planned out all along. And so what we see in Exodus, in that final plague, is God revealing how he's going to put the pieces back together for us through a, through a firstborn son. That firstborn son's going to have to die on behalf of others as well. So what we have going on here is Isaiah's introducing this idea that there's a second Exodus coming. The first exodus, the Israelites were literal slaves in Egypt. The second exodus is going to free all of God's people everywhere for all time from being slaves to sin and death. That's what the second exodus did. The second exodus begins in a manger. If you don't believe me, when Jesus is a young boy and there's a king chasing after him, this sounds familiar. How how was Moses born? Moses was born during a time when the king was killing what? All the Israelites' little baby boys. And King Herod, when Jesus is born, is doing what? Killing little baby boys. Remember when Jesus is young and Joseph and Mary have to take him, where do they take him? Where do they escape to? What? That's weird, right? What a coincidence. And when they take him little, when they're running from King Herod, they take him to Egypt. And then they're able to bring him back. 
It's as if Jesus is participating in the history of his people, isn't it? It's as if God said, you need to remember, everybody, all of us, what's happened in the past is going to happen again. So when Jesus is going to come onto the scene, he leaves Egypt and comes back to the promised land. That's how his life begins. It's because God is signaling that there's a second exodus occurring here, that something new is going on. Your God will come, Isaiah says in verse 4. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. God will come and he will save. And the story we're telling right now at Christmas time is God has come and he will save. He will save. Isaiah says in verse 3, chapter 35, verse 5, 6, and 7. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. What is he saying? The old has gone away and something new is happening. Verse 5 and 6 should ring true to you. They should sound familiar. In the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter, John the Baptist is asking Jesus, Jesus, as he's about to die, is this what, am I doing the right thing? Are you the one who was supposed to come? Are you the one that Isaiah was talking about all those years ago? And Jesus' reply is, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone does not stumble on account of me. Isaiah told us that we would know this new exodus was beginning, was starting when, verse 5, when the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute shout for joy. And if you've read your Gospels recently, that should sound familiar. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus' ministry on earth is not to the rich and the wealthy and the elite. Matter of fact, he has some harsh words for those people. They're the ones who end up killing him, by the way. Jesus spends an awful lot of time with those that society has cast aside. Those who society said they're not really worth a whole lot. And what does Jesus do with those people? He opens the eyes of those who are blind. He heals the ears of those who can't hear. He makes the lame walk again. And the mute tongue is able to shout for joy. Isaiah tells us what Jesus is going to do in 5 and 6, doesn't he? And Jesus, he does it. He accomplishes all the while bringing joy to all those people who were blind but now can see, who were deaf but now can hear, who were lame but now can walk, who were mute but now who can speak. Isaiah tells us that you need to pay attention. When this happens, understand that this second exodus is getting kicked off, and Jesus kicks it off, doesn't he? Certainly does. Isaiah continues in verse 8 and 9 and says this, And the highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. 
few things I want to point out in this section. As he talks about this highway, notice who he says are those who will walk on it. It will be for those who walk on that way, and way is capitalized. Now we know the, the, that the first Christians didn't call themselves Christians, that that hat was a title given to them by someone else. What did they call themselves? Followers of the way. The way. Weird. Weird that it shows up here in Isaiah, isn't it? Hopefully you've given up the coincidence theory by this point. If you haven't, we'll talk later. He ends this section in verse 9 by talking about a certain group of people that will walk there. He says, No lion will be there, or any ravenous beast that will not be found there. What's he saying? It's safe. You're protected. You don't have to fear anymore. But only the redeemed will walk there. Well, that word redeem is an interesting word. It comes from, from the idea of slavery. In the ancient world, you weren't a slave because of the color of your skin or where you were. You were a slave, generally speaking, because you were in debt. Or your parents were in debt. And you couldn't pay it off, and so the only way to pay off your debt was to become a slave was to sell yourself into slavery. Now, some people were born into it. Some people certainly were. People, orphan, orphan children were often just raised as slaves and then became slaves their whole lives. But what you could do is you could, if you were feeling kind and generous and you had wealth, you could go to someone's slave owner and say, hey, how much, how much do they owe you? How much is left? What will it take to pay for their freedom? And that slave master would say, hey, they, own, they owe this much left. And you could, you could pay that that slave owner, and the slave was now free. You had redeemed them. You had bought them back with a price. I already told you, the second exodus is not about being actual, literal slaves in Egypt. It's about being slaves to sin and death. That's what the Bible tells us. Paul tells us that we're all slaves to sin and death. Before we meet this Jesus. Paul also tells us that Jesus is the one who redeemed us. That he paid a price, a heavy price, to win back our freedom from that sin and that death. We talked about the idea of redemption this week actually in our Bible study in the book of Romans. And the illustration I used was, and what I wanted them and myself to meditate on, I want you to do the same is you think about all the sins that Jesus died for. Now remember, the arms of the cross go forever past and forever future. The cross covers the sins of everybody who's ever lived and who's ever committed one. Now just for a moment, now I'm not good at math. It's not my specialty. That's why I'm a pastor. Not a lot of math. I took one math class in Bible college. This is awesome. It's great. This isn't my subject. When you start putting letters with math, you've lost me, right? What are we doing here? Numbers only. No letters. That's... It's too much. But I want you to think for just a moment of all the sins that have ever been committed, not just yours, but everybody's, right? Now, yours and mine will add up, but the sins of everybody who's ever lived. Now, that number is beyond anything I could possibly understand. You think about how much volume of blood is in the human body. And you think, just for a moment, about the fact that Jesus' blood that was spilled paid for every one of those sins. We have fought and argued and mined precious gold and diamonds for years, and my argument would be you could pile all those up, 
all the gold the world's ever found, all the diamonds that have ever been silver and bronze and pile them up in a pile, and they would not be worth one drop of the blood of Jesus. We sing a hymn about how, how there's power in the blood. Next time you sing it, remind yourself that there's an awful lot of power in that blood. And to redeem us, to buy us back, the price Jesus had to pay wasn't silver or gold. It was his blood shed on the cross. And man is their power in that blood. The worth there is, we can't calculate it. It's impossible. To redeem us, Jesus paid the ultimate price to buy us back from being slaves to sin and to death. And Isaiah ends this chapter like this. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah gives them a picture of hope that is expressed with joy. We have joy not because we're so good or because we've done anything. We have joy because Jesus He's our joy. Joy. Joy goes beyond happiness. Joy is is much greater than that. You can have joy in the midst of great heartache if you have Jesus. You don't. You'll never find joy. I want you to think for just a minute about this picture Isaiah paints in this whole section. About About this beautiful place where the water is, is everywhere and things grow up lush and green. And I want you to think just for a moment of how the Bible starts. How's it begin? It begins in a garden. Where God has planted this beautiful garden, puts Adam and Eve in it. And the only reason they ever have to leave the garden is because of sin. Now, if you know how the Bible begins, then you know how it ends. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you know what happens there? gardens reappeared. Of course, this time, that garden's not called a garden. What's it called? It's called heaven. The Persian word that's used there for heaven means a walled garden. And the picture Isaiah gave us at the beginning of this chapter was that things were bursting back to life. It had once been dead. And my argument with you is the same is true for us today. We're experiencing it. We're going to experience it fully someday. And God puts all those pieces back. He started putting the pieces of the puzzle back together. But a day is coming when he comes and gets rid of sin once and for all. And that day, where we get to see him face to face. And if you think you've experienced joy now, just think what you'll experience. When God, who book Revelation tells us, we'll wipe every tear from our eyes. We'll no longer let death or mourning or pain to come our way because the old order of things, John says, has passed away. That's when we'll experience joy like we've never experienced before. We'll end with this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. Those are these wise men. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Absolutely, why not? The king has been born. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. On coming to the house, they, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The same posture we have to have today. As we approach, we approach the manger like we approach the cross, we do so with great humility. Understanding that in the manger and on the cross, the King of Kings and Lords of Lords is present. So when we approach it, we approach it. There's only one posture to approach it, and that's on our knees. In humility. Knowing that we bring nothing. That our hands are open and they are empty. And God brings it all on our behalf. That you and I don't deserve grace. We don't deserve forgiveness and we can't earn it. That it is a free gift given from God. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad it is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by all that you have done for us. God, as we open up this, this book that you've given us, as we read Isaiah 35 and we realize that Isaiah is painting a picture not just for the Israelites then he was, but painting a picture for us today of what you would accomplish through your son Jesus. God, we're so grateful that he was willing to, to suffer on our behalf, that he took on great pain, both physical, spiritual, for us. So, so he could accomplish for us something we could never accomplish ourselves. That he could reconcile us, he could bring us back to relationship with you, he could redeem us, he could pay the price for our sin once and for all. So God, we thank you for all that you do for us, and thank you for your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said.